Come on in. How many of you uh, like to read? Enjoy reading? Uh, how many of you have ever read this book? It's called The Body by Charles Colson. Okay. How many of you know who Charles Colson is? He was the special counsel to President Nixon from 1969 to 1970. He was the first one among that administration that ended up incarcerated. So he's quite famous. It was while in prison that he actually became a Christian and his life turned around. And he's written this book about the body of Christ. Uh, I would love to take the time to read this whole chapter to you, chapter 8, but it is quite lengthy. I actually thought that it was a made-up story until this week when to my shock I discovered it was real. The, the, the title of this chapter, chapter 8, is called this, Extending the Right Fist of Fellowship. Go something like this. <clears throat> there was an incident that occurred at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Newton, Massachusetts. And by the way, realize as I'm saying this, this is a true story, a true account of this story. Just, it's amazing. A church that desperately wanted to relieve itself of its pastor. The deacons had met together privately and had made the decision that they were going to call a special meeting of the entire congregation in order to oust their pastor. Pastor Waite was his name. The deacons had a strategy. They began to sit right in the front row, all jammed together, in order that when it came time for them to make the announcements, which they regularly did, they would come up and make the announcement that there would be a special meeting called. The pastor somehow got wind of this. So every Sunday for weeks on end, instead of handing it off to them to make the announcement, the pastor would make the announcements, forestalling any special meeting announcement. Finally, it came to a head on the third Sunday of May. Pastor Waite took his microphone and put his lapel on and got it all ready, stood in front of the communion table that always stood right there, and he stood to make the announcements. But at that very moment, Frank Fowler, who was the head deacon for their church, stood up from among the deacons, went up to the platform, to the pulpit, adjusted the microphone, and began to make this announcement. This is to announce a special congregational meeting for this afternoon to discuss, and suddenly, he couldn't be heard anymore. Flora Waite, who was the pastor's wife, by the way, she and the church pianist began to hammer out loudly a hymn on their instruments along with the organist, Sharon Carlson. They got through one verse of the hymn when all of a sudden, all sound stopped. Because Frank Fowler had pulled the cord on the organ and another deacon had gone up and slammed the piano lid shut on the fingers of Flora Waite. She began to flail around hitting him, even lost her hat in all of the malu. At that point, there was a silence in the congregation. They were stunned. They were awkward. They didn't know what to do. There was a pause while everybody held their breath. And finally, the youngest and the biggest deacon, who was himself a weightlifter, 
Ray Bryson was his name, walked up to the middle of the aisle and stood and faced the pastor, kind of like the showdown at OK Corral. And he just stared at the pastor until finally the pastor blinked. And at that point, Ray knew the pastor understood he was no longer in charge. And he started to make his way back to his seat, going to allow Frank, the head deacon, to continue with his announcement when he accidentally tripped over the microphone cord and fell to the floor. It was a huge bang. Everybody sat in stunned silence. Pastor Waite waited just a moment too long to reach out his hand in order to help Ray up, causing everybody in the congregation to assume the pastor had actually pushed him. And apparently, Ray came to the same conclusion because he stood up and turned around and punched the pastor right in the nose. Flora Waite screamed and ran to her husband's aid, but by that time, the whole church had hit the altar area right here, and they were literally duking it out. The fight ended when the police showed up. They took down names, made their report, and recommended that some of those who needed it, like Ray Bryson, had broken his knuckles, and the pastor had broken his nose, and they even had to confiscate Mary Dahl's knitting needles because she was poking everybody with them. So they basically said, everybody go home. That Wednesday, the deacons and Pastor Waite each received a notice to appear at the Newton Courthouse for a hearing. David Goldstein, who was a member of Temple Beth Shalom in their town, was the presiding magistrate. The judge looked at all of the members of Emmanuel Baptist Church from Newton as they filed in, and he looked at them with their nose all plastered, with their hand in a cast, everybody bruised. He's looking at them, and then he looks down and he takes time to read all of the police reports. And then he looked up and he asked them all to stand. And he said this, Your Jesus may allow this sort of thing in His followers, but the Commonwealth of Massachusetts will not permit this fight as a regular order of your service. By the time that day was over, the leadership of Emmanuel Baptist Church filed out to their cars. On every single car in the parking lot, there was this um, bumper sticker. It said this, God is with us at Emmanuel Baptist Church. That's a true story. Last week, we began to look at the cause of conflict. What causes us to argue, to have fights in our marriage, in the workplace, in school, in our families, in our nation and in the world? What causes conflict? And we saw that, according to James, conflict comes from two primary arenas. First is basic human desires. But when they are mixed with number two, worldly or ungodly motivation, you are rife for problems. Now, we looked last week, and we know that there are some desires we have, that people have, that are just plain wrong. And if God were to take those desires away, we could understand that a little bit more easily because we know that He's doing it for our own good. But here's the rub. What happens when God denies you 
or even takes away from you desires that you think are good. Even legitimate desires, we have a difficult time believing that God could actually say no to us. If you're a parent here, I am sure there have been times when your child has asked to do something that in their childlike mind, they assume is good. It's what they desperately want. And you as mom or dad say no to them, and they look at you with these big eyes like you're the meanest monster in the whole world. How could you possibly say no to having cake for breakfast? What's wrong with you? And we feel the same way about God sometimes. How could you deny me that which I want so much? How will you handle it when you don't get what you want? Uh, we're in James chapter 4. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, if not, the Scripture will be up on the uh, screens in just a moment. How will you handle it when you don't get what you want in life? What you think is reasonable and fair? What you think is good? Maybe even what you think is godly? How will you handle it when that doesn't happen? Uh, this whole book, I believe the whole book of James, is about helping us to grow up. Helping us to become more mature. How to be strong in our faith. It's how to make our faith actually work for us. I'm going to make a statement now for those of you. In fact, let me just ask you before I do that. How many of you would like to actually become more mature? I don't mean age. You're going to do that regardless. How many of you would like to be more mature? Would you raise your hand? How many of you would like to be stronger in your faith? Yeah, okay. So this statement is for you. This is a hard statement. And I want you just to chew on it. Maybe you won't even agree with me. But I want you to chew on it. I believe. God will deny you anything. He will take anything away from you from which you draw the source of life outside of Him. Now think about that. God will withhold from you and withdraw from you anything from which you draw your life, your joy, your happiness, your identity if it's outside of Him. And the reason is this. Anything that you need more than God is an idol. It's an idol in your life. And God knows that ultimately idols destroy. They kill. They actually rob you of the very thing you thought that thing would give you. Most of our problems, most of our struggles, most of our arguments, most of our fights come from desires that we have that are unsubmitted to God and to His Lordship. We want it, and that's all there is to it. So when God says no, we look for other input. We, we have helps teams today, and one of the helps teams that you'll see at the end is this prophetic. We go and we get a prophetic word. We ask God to speak to us. And we know that God does speak to us. But I'm going to keep going to Prophet after prophet after prophet until I finally one that tells me what I want to hear. It's, it's kind of like it reminds me of the story of the guy who fell off the edge of a cliff and he's holding by this little scrub brush knowing he's going to plummet to his death hundreds of feet down below. And he cries out, is there anybody up there? God hears him from heaven and says, I'm here, what do you want? And the guy looks up and says, I want you to save me. And God says, Okay, let go. 
And the guy looks down and he looks back up and he looks down and he says, anybody else up there? We do the same thing. We, when we don't get what we want, we look for a second opinion. Last week we dealt with the cause of conflict. And if you weren't here for that and you would like to hear that, you can get that at the sound department in the back there. Uh, today I want to talk to you about the cure for conflict. The cure for conflict. I'm in uh, James chapter 4, and I'm beginning reading in verse 6. You can follow along if you would. But He gives more grace. He, being God, gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Here in just these few verses, five verses, James gives us the cure to all of our conflict. All of our arguments, all of our fights can be cured by one simple thing. Did you see? Did you see it in the text? He says the answer to all of your conflict is simply this: humble yourself. Humble yourself. Now, humility is not a characteristic that is touted much in our culture. In fact, we far more tout pride, taking pride in yourself, pride in your accomplishment, pride in our country, pride in our flag, pride in our president. We tout pride, not too much goes into humility. Let me be clear, nowhere in the text that I have read, or anywhere else I believe in the Bible, will you find that it's right for you to ask God to humble you. In fact, I would recommend you not ask God to humble you. You can ask God to give you the grace to humble yourself, but humbling is something you must do. So he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Why does he say that? Because the opposite of pride, remember it says God resists the proud. The opposite of pride is humility. And he says we need to humble ourselves if we want God's help in life. Humility is not a sign of weakness. It's not a matter of becoming everybody's doormat. Humility is recognizing who you are in God and what it is that God wants done in any given situation. Isaiah 57.15 says this, and if you haven't marked this in your Bible, this would be a good verse to memorize or to mark down, maybe color-coded in your Bibles. It says this, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, Isaiah 57.15, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. God says, I dwell with those who are of a humble and a contrite spirit. James is just brilliant in my opinion. James never gives us a, a, a command or an answer without telling us how to do it. And James gives us in these verses that we just read, four simple ways by which we can walk in humility. 
four ways that we can find help from God to humble ourselves. So I want to give them to you really quickly. I won't take real long with any of them. <coughs> but I want you to get this. So if you're taking notes, this is kind of like the cure is humble yourself. Now I'm going to talk to you about what are the four ways that we can humble ourselves. Number one, give in to God. That's what he says. Verse 7, therefore, submit to God. That's the starting point. Don't try to run your own life. Quit trying to run your own life. Allow God to be the Lord. Now, back in the 1970s, maybe it was before that, but that's when I remember first hearing about it. 1970s, there was a big push that I saw go around the church. People were preaching it all over the place. God can be your Savior because you've asked Him to forgive your sins so that you can go to heaven, but it's up to you to make Him the Lord of your life. And I want to suggest to you, that's horrid theology. In fact, the Scripture is pretty clear. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can't have a Savior unless He's the Lord of your life. To be the Lord of your life means He's in charge. He's the one who is the boss. So if you want to humble yourself, it starts with the first step of recognizing. Recognizing, not making, because you can't make Him anything. He already is. But it's recognizing His Lordship in your life. Conflict happens with other people because you have conflict inside. And the conflict inside is, who's in charge? Who's in charge of your life? For a long time, and maybe this isn't you, maybe I'm telling tales, which Karen always hates it when I do this. Um, so do my kids. Um, for a long time, Anytime I was unhappy or upset, I blamed her. Her. That, that woman right back there in the white sweater. That's my wife. Her name's Kavrin. She's the best thing that's ever happened to me in this life. I mean, when God brought her across my path, it was like before she ever knew it. In fact, I did wrong. I, I was bad. I can't believe I ever did this. We had, I think we'd only taken like one date and I told her I was going to marry her. I felt like God had already told me that. One of the few times I felt like God spoke audibly. But over, we've been married now for 39 years. Over 39 years, there have been many times when I've been unhappy with my life. I've been upset. I've been angry. And I've blamed her. If you would only do this, that would make me happy. Whatever this is, you fill in the blank. Or, if you hadn't said that, then I wouldn't have gotten upset. I made her, in some ways, the basis for my happiness and my joy in life. It took me years to understand something that I'm sure you all got within your first weeks of marriage. It took me years to realize the unhappiness that I was feeling wasn't her fault at all. It was inside of me. I was just plain unhappy with me. Blaming anybody else didn't do any good. Ultimately, there was a war inside of me. The war was, who's in charge? Who's in charge of my life? If I'm in charge, then anytime somebody does something that I don't like, then I get upset about it. I get angry. 
I feel like I am rightful in lashing out, in arguing, in battling, in warring. But if God's in charge, I have to somewhere, somehow, measure into the equation that He causes all things to work together for good. And by the way, if you believe that God's in charge, you have to also believe that He's even in charge of who you've picked as a mate, as a spouse. Even if you picked that spouse before you even knew God. God's so powerful, He's so in charge, He even controls that. Who's in charge of your life? Paul says in Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. When it talks about that word rule, it's actually a word for an umpire. And what's an umpire do? The umpire makes the calls. Ball, strike, out, safe. He's saying, let the peace of God make the calls in your life. Do you think that maybe your relationships outside of yourself would maybe be more peaceful if you had a little bit of peace inside? Because that's what he's saying. Let the peace. It's, I think it's true in our marriages. It's true in our workplace, in school. It's even true in the church. If God is in charge, there's going to be more peace. Because we always want to do things His way. The starting point of getting along with others is allowing God to be in charge in your own heart and life which then brings you peace, which allows you to be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's what he says. Starts with having peace inside before you will ever have peace outside. Now, every single one of these that I'm going to give you comes with a great promise. It's written right in the text. So it's like, this is how you do it. And if you do it, this is what you will realize. This is what you will get out of it. The promise that He gives is this. As we humble ourselves, He will give us grace. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You want grace in your life? Grace is more than just the fact that God saves you from your sin. Grace is the active power of God's Holy Spirit at work in your life. And He says if you will humble yourself, Stop copying that attitude every time you don't get what you want when you don't think your kids did things right or your spouse or your boss. Believe that God is actually in charge. Number two, get wise to Satan. So give in to God was number one. Number two, get wise to Satan. He says resist the devil and he will flee from you. We've got to realize the source of all conflict. We have an enemy. His name is the devil or Satan or Lucifer. That word resist, by the way, resist the devil, is a fighting term. It's actually like a sumo term. You know, you know how sumo wrestlers work? Have you, have you ever seen sumo? I mean, they, they get out here and they... And they stomp. And they want to make sure they've got a firm base. And then they get down and they're in position. The word that is used for resist is get in position. Have a stable foundation. Get ready for the attack. If they just stood there, you're easily going to be toppled over. But he says, get prepared. Expect it. Anticipate it. Do you ever take time to think about the fact that there is a devil? 
and that He wants to destroy you? Do you know there has never been a day that you have awakened in the morning and the devil thought, I think I'll be nice to you today. Every single moment of every day, he hates your guts. And he wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy all of your relationships. He wants to destroy your health. He wants to destroy your destiny. Why? Because he wants to destroy anything that God loves. Because he hates God so much. He is against you. There's never a time when you don't have an enemy. And so here's the problem. We get surprised when the enemy attacks us. It's like, where did that come from? It's like it came out of the blue. It didn't come out of the blue. The enemy has a strategy. He wants to kill you. He wants to ruin your life. So we get shocked when he attacks us. Kind of like people get shocked when April 15th comes along. Oh my God, I've got to pay my taxes. Like we didn't know that ahead of time. You've got an enemy. His name is Satan. And he wants to kill you. The other thing that happens, which is true for me, I, I do this too often. I mean, I've been walking with Jesus for a long time, and I still fall in the trap. The enemy attacks me. It could be with thoughts or with feelings. He attacks me, and I get depressed because he attacks me. I thought I was better than that. Well, wait a minute. We're never better than that. He attacked Jesus, who was perfect in every way. What makes you think you're better than Jesus? And yet we get all depressed and discouraged because we're under attack. It's terrible. Well, anytime you get up in the morning and you find yourself and Satan going in the same direction, you've got a problem. That's the only way he's not going to attack you. When you go along with his way. He's pretty selfish that way. How does the devil operate? He, he plays on our pride. Especially our wounded pride. How many of you guys who are married have ever had an argument with your spouse? The rest of you? I read somewhere. I don't know. I won't say that. Um, how many of you, when you've had this argument with your spouse, have had a conversation going on in your head about how wrong your spouse is? Have you, Am I the only one that does this? I, I get every argument in order. This is why you're wrong and I'm right. But what's worse is I have these thoughts in my head. And by the way, I hate this about the devil. I hate the fact that he often makes his thoughts sound like my thoughts. Out of the blue, I hear things like, you don't deserve this. Who does she think she is? I work hard every day. I put food on the table. I deserve better than this. The devil comes and he lies in our minds with a voice that sounds a lot like ours. I, I've been talking to my wife at various times or other situations I've been in and not had that thought at all. And it's like it pops in out of the blue and I, I'm so dumb sometimes. I don't remember. I have an enemy who brings these thoughts in. And so do you. He wants to destroy your marriage. 
your life, your work, everything about you, because he hates you. We have an enemy. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys remember back in the day when we only had three channels on TV. You guys remember? And you actually had to get up and turn the channel. <laughs> I mean, our kids have no idea how much we suffered in life to get them where they are. Um, how many of you guys remember the old cartoons where you would have um, Porky Pig hunting that rabbit? You guys, any of you, any of you old enough? Okay. How many of you remember times when Porky would have a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder whispering in his ear? You know, that's not far from the truth. I don't know who thought that up, but it's pretty close. Because you have a devil whispering in your ear. But on the other side of the equation, you don't just have God whispering in your other ear. You have God the Holy Ghost dwelling inside of you. Which voice are you going to listen to? One of the things that uh, I've recognized in terms of how do we resist the devil? He says, resist the devil. We do it the same way Jesus did. When Jesus was confronted by the devil in what we call the temptations, this was a battle. How did Jesus handle it? What was Jesus' response every time the devil came against him? It is written. He gave them the Scripture. If you're going to resist the devil, you've got to remember what God has spoken over your heart and life. That's why Paul tells Timothy to war the good fight based upon the prophecies you have received. Remember what God has said. Cairn puts it this way. She often says this. Remember in the dark that which God has said in the light. She has a way with words. She's much better at it. Remember in the dark what God has already said to you in the light. There's also a great promise here. It says, resist the devil and he will flee. So, well, I have. I've resisted. He didn't say he will flee forever. He will flee each time. You resist God's promises. He will flee. So, give in to God, number one. Number two, get wise to Satan. Number three, grow closer to God. Nurture your relationship with God because when you do, that changes the atmosphere of your whole life. Um, one of the things that bothers me about my wife She's left, so I can say this now. We can be arguing. And the way we argue is not the way. I mean, it used to be volatile. It used to be loud and angry sometimes. I came in a family. I only knew one way. You power up over people. So we would argue. <clears throat> now it's, it's a lot different. Now we just kind of sit and stare at each other. It's true. Um... <laughs> She does this thing that I hate. I hate it. Oh. She'll look at me. She'll say, do you think we should pray? Now, in my worst moments, I say, no! In my saner moments, I say, fine, go ahead. Just being honest, I'm stupid like everybody. I do dumb things. I don't handle it all well. She knows that if we pray, we invite in the presence of God, God's going to come. 
And it's going to change things. The other thing she does is there have been times when we have been upset with one another. Not, again, we're not yelling or anything like that. We're just we're upset about a situation or circumstance we're trying to come to a decision on. She'll go over and she will turn on a CD player. And she's not turning on like Led Zeppelin. I want Iron Maiden now. I'm ready to fight. She's turning on some kind of worship music. So, how do we grow closer to God? Let me give you just some of the things that I have found in my own life. Maybe they're not your way. These are things that have helped me sense the presence of God more on a day-by-day basis. How to walk with God daily. Number one, worship and prayer. Which is all about loving God. I have found that when I'm upset, even when I come into church, you know, you know sometimes I come to church on Sundays when I have to preach upset? Do you know that? There are times when everything in me wants to say, get somebody else to preach. I'm in no condition. But I come in and we begin to worship God with song. And something of God's Spirit comes in and the atmosphere around us changes. Worship and prayer invites God's presence. And it changes things around you. Fill your house with worship. I'm not saying don't watch TV. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying don't listen to other music. I'm not saying don't read other books. But invite God in. Invite His presence in with worship songs, with prayer, with reading His Word. It changes things around you. Number two, service. Which is loving God by serving others. What I have found is that when I serve others, it gets the focus off of me. It helps me to realize there's other people in need. And sometimes, uh, we're dealing with situations now with my mother-in-law, as most of you are aware, who has uh, advanced dementia. It can be wearying. It can be hard. But one of the things that Karen has been doing, which is not always good, but sometimes is good, is she has joined a uh, dementia blog group. And she will read to me what some other people are going through. Invariably, she will read something. I'll look at her and she'll look at me and she'll say, okay, we don't have it that bad. When you're aware of others' needs, it changes your focus, your perspective a little bit. And you invite God's presence even by serving others. Like I talked about serving by cleaning, by ushering by doing the bathrooms that's serving you say well yeah i don't get any out of it oh you do you help to usher in the presence of god into this place in fact i believe that when you're in here vacuuming the floors and straightening the chairs and scrubbing the toilets when you do that with the right attitude we already have invited the presence of god before anybody else comes in this room what you do matters Number three, outreach. Loving God by loving lost people. When you catch God's heart for other people who don't know Him, it changes something inside of you. I mean, around here in the United States where everybody you ask out in the streets is a Christian, everybody's a Christian, whether they've ever walked with God or not, whether they go to church or not, they're a Christian. Why? Because I grew up in a Christian nation. But you go other places, it is, it is amazing when you preach the same gospel that you hear every Sunday. And people's hearts are turned towards God. Something in you is humbled. 
and your life changes. Fellowship, number four, loving God by loving His people. Just hanging out with certain people changes your life. For good or for ill, the Scripture says bad company can even corrupt good manners. In other words, your friends matter. Who are you hanging out with? Is it helping you to grow and mature to become more a man or woman of God? Who are your friends? Because it matters. Hanging out with the people of God. People who love Jesus. I'm not saying having nothing to do. You know that I go down to Bud's on purpose because I like to talk to people that maybe don't know God. But I get to meet with them, find out what life is like for them, and share the love of God with them. But I also love being able to come here and spend time with you. Number five, discipleship. It's loving God by becoming more like Him. It's actually opening yourself to God's discipline in your life. Reading the Word. Spending time just in prayer. Waiting on God. And then finally, number six, what I call power. It's loving God by experiencing His presence. I forget who it was. I think it was maybe Brother Tom. Uh, during our pre-service prayer time, talked about there, it's possible that there are people who come in the doors of the church who believe in God but have never experienced His presence. Something shifts when you've encountered God. My life has been changed forever because of that. So, you spend time with God. I have discovered that things around me change. I, I watched a video series, a marriage video series once, and it said this, when the argument level rises in your marriage, it means somebody is not spending time with the Lord. Isaiah 26.3 says, He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed or centered or focused or consumed by Him. When you spend time with the Lord, when you turn your thoughts to Him, you will get along far better with other people. Haven't you found, by the way, that when you start your day spending time with God, your day goes better? Spend time with God. The conflict in your life is in direct proportion to the amount of time you're spending with God. Now, there's a great promise here. He said, draw near to God. That's the promise. Draw near to God. And then he says, He will draw near to you. He promises if you draw near, you make the step, He will come and meet with you. So, give in to God, get wise to Satan, get close to God, and number four, get serious about having right relationship. Verse 8, he says, wash your hands. Purify your heart. In other words, don't minimize the relational struggles that you're having. Don't let them control, but don't minimize them. What it says for me is that I need to take this thing about relationships seriously. If I'm in relationship with somebody, I can't just let it go. Friendship is too important. Relationship matters. Which means that a lot of times, one of the things that's been hard for me personally, partly because of my upbringing, partly because of pride, I've learned that there are times when I have to say I'm sorry even if I don't think I'm all wrong. Maybe I didn't say it the best, so it's easy to excuse myself. I didn't say it perfectly, but I didn't do that. And it's really hard for me then to say I'm sorry. When the truth is, by asking forgiveness, you actually open the door for God to heal 
and to grow that relationship, to help things to change. Maybe in your mind, the other person is 95% wrong and you're only 5% wrong. Take ownership for your 5%. And by the way, when you say, I'm sorry, don't then tag on to it a but. I'm sorry that I said this, but if you hadn't, don't give caveats. If you're going to apologize, apologize for you without saying one word about the other person. Just say, I'm sorry for, and then explain it. Do you know how much angst is caused when you, in the name of giving an apology, actually stir up more strife by attacking in your apology? kind of like over the years I've had people come and say to me I've never told you anything I've never told you this pastor but I, I needed to apologize to you I need to ask your forgiveness because I've hated your guts for all these years okay you have felt something inside you deal with your inside emotions repent before God for hating my guts but you don't have to tell me that Make sure that what you're apologizing for was something that was known and act. Not for all your thoughts that were in your mind. Those you repent of. The rest you apologize for. Joyce Landorf, who was uh, a woman who used to travel quite a bit and had written books and did video series, she had a series called Irregular People. And she talks about the fact that God puts people in our lives with whom we have relationship for no other reason than that it can be like sandpaper rubbing the rough edges off of us. Have you ever thought about the fact that maybe God put people in your life on purpose? Because He wanted you to grow and change? If we believe that God is in charge of our lives, if He is the Lord, then it's time for us to stop praying that God would change our spouse or change the situation and instead say, God, change me. Change me. And even here, he gives a promise. He says, humble yourself before the Lord and He will lift you up. His promise is that if you will humble yourself, even in your relationships by apologizing, you will receive honor ultimately. Honor from God for sure. He will lift you up. But I think in time, you'll also find honor from other people. It's not too late for things to change in your life. Doesn't matter how old you are, things can still change. You can change. So instead of coming in in the name of a prayer request, gossip about your spouse or about some other situation, how about you actually take some time and say, God, change me. Change me. I'm the one in need of prayer. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. And until we get there, we're not grown up. We're not grown up yet. We're growing, but we're not there yet. And I think that's true for all of us. Last week I talked to you about desires mixed with worldly motivations. And I talked about three desires. I wonder today, what are the desires that you struggle with most? Which of those three that I gave you? The desire to have, 
Maybe in your mind, you're out there just eking out a living. You're working hard trying to get ahead. But you know in your heart of hearts, your relationships around you are falling apart. Your marriage is crumbling while you have been working long, hard hours so that you can have, so that you can buy the toys you want. The latest and the greatest. Is your struggle today your desire to have? Or is your desire to feel? I want to feel important. I want to have people recognize who I am. I want pleasure in life. I want comfort in life. Or is it finally the desire to be? I want people to know I'm important. I want people to see me and to think highly of me. I'm often slightly amused when somebody comes to me and says, I want to clarify what I said because I don't want to come across that way. Inside my mind, I don't usually say it, but inside my mind I think, you don't want to come across that way or you don't want to be that way. Which is it? Because it sounds like you want to be that way, you just don't want people to see you that way. Which is it? Where are you struggling today in your relationships? What are you finding is a conflict in your own soul? I want to give you an opportunity to give prayer. I think this would be a great time in order for you to meet with God and to have God's mercy and grace change some things in your life. I say it's a great time, partly because I recognize that during the summertime, your kids are home more. It's easy to lose your mind during that time. You're grateful school's over. Now it's summer, and it's all day, every day, and it's running them to swimming lessons, and to, you, you name it. It's still a great time right now to meet with God and have God do something inside of your soul. And wouldn't it be great to finish out 2019 in the second half of the year better than the first half? I'm going to ask you if you would just to bow your head. I'm going to ask the uh, ministry team if they would come on up. Those of you that are help members. We have available for anyone who would like prayer, different teams, they represent different things. We say helps, but each one means something. Helps, H is for healing, if you are in need of physical healing in some way. They're available to pray for you. E is for encounter. If you just recognize you need to have a fresh encounter with God, you could go to that team. Or L is life. Just life situations are overwhelming you right now, and you need somebody to agree with you and stand with you. P is the prophetic. You just feel like you need a word from God. And I want to encourage you. It's easy to say everybody wants a word from God, but maybe there's something else that God really, through these messages, has put His finger upon. And then finally, S is for salvation. Maybe you're here and you don't know the Lord, but you would like to. You would like to know this God who is so good, who helps us to encounter Him, to have our sins forgiven, and to grow in Him. But the truth is, any one of these team members can pray for you for anything. If you find yourself wanting to go to life, but they're busy with somebody, go next door and let the other person pray for you. Just tell them, you know, this is what I need prayer for. And they would love to be able to meet with you. So I want to pray for you generally. I'm going to release you. If you're not going to stay, if you could take it out into the foyer, we'll close the doors, keep it quiet so that they can get prayer. But I encourage you, at the time at which you hear things, with every pronunciation of the Word of God, every proclamation, every pronouncing, there is an anointing for what God wants to have happen. If you want to respond, 
this would be a good time to respond to the word that you have heard preached today. So, so, bow your heads and let's pray together. Father, I thank you for each one that is here and for your presence in our midst. We pray, God, that you would, in fact, help us as men and women to grow up into the fullness of Christ. That we would be more than Christian by name going through the motions, but we would be a people who walk aware of His presence every moment of the day. Help us to be more aware of it. And Lord, as the different team members pray for those who come forward, I pray for an anointing upon their prayers that they would hear your heart and be able to pray over them that which you want said. I pray your blessing upon each one. And as they go out of this place, let it be with an unction from you to be able to live for you in everyday life. Not just here on a Sunday, but on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all through the week, they would live for you. Let this word be alive to them, I pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. If you would like prayer, they're available for you. Again, if you're going to leave, we'll close those doors and you can go out in the foyer and keep it down out there a little bit.